Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Director of Performance at the St. Louis Cardinals, Rob Butler. Thanks for tuning in to episode 173 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So absolutely delighted to get the Director of Performance at the Cardinals, Rob Butler. So before we get going, another massive thanks to uh, Martin Bushite for making this introduction. So making the introduction uh, between myself and Rob. So with Rob's background uh, with the PhD in biomechanics, that kind of links really nicely with the, the kind of discussion points that I that ha- I had for this episode and how that his work in a university um, translates to the work that he's doing as the director of performance at the Cardinals. So we discuss uh, lots of things from data collection, what they are collecting, what they're not collecting, the process they go through with regards to what that actually is and where that starts. Also a little bit about recruitment, given baseball's um, public kind of face that, that, that recruitment is obviously a huge thing and how they go about um, using data for that. Given that they have an incredibly uh, strenuous schedule in terms of games, we discuss injury reduction strategies and the management of the, um, the pitchers, which is a really interesting uh, piece that, that Rob speaks about. If we have this gap, what do we think about this to fill it? Is it re- do we understand the reliability to it? Do we understand the validity to us that it is? Is it scalable? Does it drive treatment? And is it repeatable efficiently for testing? Those are some basic premises that we went into to look at our different protocols with to figure out what can fit into the bucket of something that's going to carry from the Dominican Republic to the um, the big league group. So it sounds very simple as I talk about, it, and I, I, that's really how we kind of anchored our, our initial decision making. But just before we do get into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't heard of Vald Performance, they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the Groin Bar, and the all-new Human Track. So if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valdperformance.com uh, or follow them on Twitter at Performance. So their all-new Human Track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and four IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So Human Track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results with some more to come which will be openly available via the Valve Performance website when they do become available. So if you, like I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit valdeperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at Performance. Also sponsoring this episode today is Forstex. So big thanks to Forstex for their continued support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, visit forstex.com but also have a little look at episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So that's at strengthofscience.com forward slash 139, where co-owner of Forstech, Dr. Daniel Cohen, goes into a lot of detail with regards to all aspects of jump monitoring. 
Um, it's certainly not a sales pitch for Forstex, but you can get a real understanding of the capability and ease of use of Forstex uh, as re with regards to the, the software. So if you are interested, Forstex.com is their website and follow them on Twitter at Forstex. So let's get over to the episode with Rob. As always, hope you enjoy and would appreciate any feedback. So Rob Butler, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Thank you for giving up your time to join me this evening. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, for being here. It's, it's quite an honor with the uh, the group of exceptional professionals that have been on your podcast in the past. Uh, to even be considered to speak, but I appreciate the opportunity kind of uh, to discuss some areas that we're uh, progressing in and still learn about from our area. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And firstly, thank you to Martin Bushite for making the introduction. Another quality introduction on uh, on Martin's part. So, so Rob, anyone that doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give us a little bit of a background on yourself, uh, experience, education, and what you're currently doing at, uh, at the Cardinals? Yeah, so um, I'm fairly indirect path to where I'm at right now as I as I, as I joke to people who um, are excited about where I've been, I, I think it took me 16 years of higher education to actually be gainfully employed in, my, in, in a role, let alone my current role. So um, there was a time of refinement there. Um, but I started, I was very excited about, I was interestingly very excited about uh, footwear growing up and, and in college and, and was very interested in biomechanics. You know, that's when a lot of Hamill's work was coming out and just um, Martin Shorten and that group, uh, Benno, um, and, and it was just, it was an exciting thing for me for whatever reason. I like talking about or listening about, uh, motion control shoes and how we would use different materials and whatnot. And, um, I mean, only to learn that the fallacies that we were presenting in at the shop in in the late nineties were completely inaccurate and inappropriate, which led me to my dissertation later. But, um, but that's kind of where I got interested in. And so biomechanics was kind of my background, the thing that I went on to get my PhD with, with uh, Irene Davis at the University of Delaware, and, which I finished up in, in 2005. And then um, and while I was very excited about footwear and, and orthotic interventions and whatnot, I, I, I found it um, part of the end of where I was researching and, and what funded me uh, through the uh, NIH was actually looking at how do we use conservative metrics or conservative measures to treat early onset osteoarthritis. So we were looking at a, at a wedged foot orthotic um, at the time in 2005. And, and it led me to start thinking about, well, what would my professional line look like? Since obviously this is going to be a well-reviewed area by um, uh, my mentor and others. And so I started to look at like, who is more, who's likely at risk to develop this? And certainly that led me down the pathway of looking into those following ACL reconstruction and and the literature on that is, is pretty well established. These individuals move differently, and 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 after ACL reconstruction, whether it's sport maneuvers or whether it's gait or running or whatever you may have, um, which has been expanding area over the past decade. Um, but that led me to kind of think about, okay, well, if they move differently, well, where does that process start? And so that led me down the discussion of outcome measures following musculoskeletal care for individuals, and I actually went on and. Um, 2006 to get my doctorate in physical therapy while simultaneously being a professor uh, at the University of Evansville in Indiana, um, just to learn more about that clinical aspect and some of those limitations. And and certainly not dissimilar from other things, we, we just didn't have a standardized way to determine whether or not someone was good or bad or et cetera, et cetera, at the time of discharge. So we really don't have a good anchor as to why these individuals develop 
osteoarthritis sooner than others or, or whether even they're really normal because we don't really have baseline data on them. And, and it got me thinking more about not necessarily the biomechanics, but the, the basic information we could collect anywhere at any time point to, to just drive decision-making from a performance orthopedic standpoint, injury standpoint, whatever it may be. Um, it's very privileged to work on some research groups with, um, with some fine military researchers uh, and learn more about what that system looks like from a, from a healthcare standpoint. Um, Deidre Tehan, Dan Rohn, Scott Schaefer, uh, Stephen Goffer, Phil Plisky, Kyle Kiesel, and all those individuals were just, they, they were talking necessarily about the data point, but what do we do with the data point? And how do we make consistent decisions regardless of time or space, really more just about the data and what does that data mean? And so it got me thinking more about really how can we use this in a structured way to think about our outcomes and driving care in collaboration with the biomechanics work, but maybe even almost seeing who's not ready yet for that level of fine-tuned analysis. You know, I don't know that it's, I don't want to simplify it, but, you know, if, if you have a, a compound fracture of the humerus, do you really need an MRI? Well, well, probably not. Like, and there's probably an argument that you may not even need an, need an X-ray, um, but because you have an idea of what's going on. Um, but kind of that thought process behind how do we utilize the information in a more consistent manner and almost an order of operations to it that gets the basic things right first before going to really higher level, uh, more complicated decision making where only certain experts can kind of weigh in. Um, and that's really where I saw myself kind of conducting more and more of the research we were included in at Duke. At Duke, I was a prof assistant professor in the School of Medicine, uh, teaching the Division of Physical Therapy and doing research in orthopedics and sports medicine. Um, but once again, the conversations were not about p-values or, or correlation coefficients as much as like what information do we have and, and how do we collaboratively and holistically as healthcare providers and um, performance specialists think about using this to maximize the outcomes that we see in our patients. Um, and when I think about where I was going to go, my kind of big next steps, uh, it seemed like there were some good opportunities in professional sport evolving. The idea of a performance department or a high performance manager, performance manager in American sport is still relatively novel, uh, maybe a decade old. Um, and there was an opportunity in Major League Baseball. And I think the exciting thing with Major League Baseball is that you have literally 10 teams to, um, to kind of integrate and develop a systematic process for. And, and so that's what we're currently consistently trying to do uh, here at the St. Louis Cardinals, where basically I oversee the medical care and, um, and strength conditioning and nutritional supplementation for the organization. Um, and I'm really lucky to have an exceptional number of staff that, that I work with. And, and really, in the end, it's, it's, it's a matter of, of having those individuals be exceptional at their job and make exceptional decisions and then trying to, to help drive a consistent process that helps us to understand where we've had successes and where we can maybe have more success in the future. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So. How, how hands-on are you in this in this role? Is it a pure managerial role? Is it kind of more like an advisory role? Are you kind of in on the ground with the with working with the athletes and the players? Yeah, the majority of my role is I, I've got a lot as kind of joke about now, but you know I wouldn't I wouldn't hire myself as a physical therapist right now, <laughs> um, or a strength coach, or at least I would hope I would find someone who's who's, who's far superior to me. Um, and certainly I'm not a certified athletic trainer, so I wouldn't hire myself for that role either. So it's really more of thinking about it from a 30,000 foot view of how can we leverage data, utilize data, efficiently get data. So I, 
I'd like to think that I'm, I'm still able to, to get in and have logical discussions with the staff about what we're doing in a given situation, but certainly the, the hands-on day-to-day work with the players is carried out by experts that are that are far better at their, their job than, than I am. And, and uh, once again, I'm lucky to have that high-level staff that's passionate about what they do uh, here with our organization. Mm-hmm. One thing one thing that would be really interesting to me would be to have a little chat around the kind of first couple of weeks and months of you coming into that into that role at that kind of like 30,000 feet level, like you say, and, and over, overseeing lots of different things in a, in a new job and actually working out where best to give your time and uh, experience. What was that first couple of months like and what was that, what process did you go through? I know it's reasonably new anyway in the role. Yeah, I, um, I have I have a lot of good individuals around me to, that um, you know, I've been involved probably consulting in, in professional sport for five to six years uh, before um, before joining the Cardinals. And I had a lot of individuals talk to me about what had maybe been successful and what had maybe been less successful. Um, and in that early time period, we had a couple of, of significant hires to make. We had a couple of... Uh, um, of other individuals to kind of bring on board and to figure out what our department was going to look like. Cause it was a newly formed department when I came on board. And, um, and I think that the main thing was, was figuring out like, where do we not have, um, where do we not have objective information that would be beneficial to streamline the process that doesn't really, I guess too much move things one way or the other, but you know, or, or, in, you know, one way we talk about often is, if there's a subjective gap that we talk about often, we should have an objective way to measure to minimize the variability in what we're seeing or discussing. Um, and so we just had some simple anchors in the ground and thinking about, you know, for a performance department, you know, the, I think the common language of performance is movement. And so we, we put some anchors in the ground related to movement to learn more about how should we develop a strength conditioning process for that? How should we kind of integrate some more um, what we call arm care preventative work from that to really individualize what we were doing with each athlete. Um, and I think we, we had, it's not that there wasn't that in the, pro, in the past. Um, there'd been some very good work done. It was just a matter of how do we systematically integrate that so that when a player goes from the Dominican Republic to um, uh, one of our, our GCL teams or a team that's based in Florida to a team that's based in Tennessee and so on and so on, do, does it all look and feel the same? with a similar premise to it and a logic behind it to allow for us collectively all to learn, but us all to collectively learn how to make this player perform at their optimal level to help them in that process. So when you when you walked into the building that first day, were you um, did you have a kind of bank of uh, object objective data that had been collected over time or was is that kind of is that pretty new there? Um, I think having a centralized repository for it may have been just that we can all look in and, and almost fishbowl a little bit was was fairly novel. And we've been getting to that to that standpoint, but um, you know, I think that uh, certainly analytics in baseball is you know is, is driven quite a bit in the past years, and and my goal is just to hopefully replicate that from the the performance standpoint. So. Um, so so no one dropped off a big spreadsheet of data on my desk when I came in. It was more of just, all right, how do we, we have a good idea of what's going on now. We've had a reasonable idea of, of how things have progressed in the past. How do we, how do we build on that and, and uh, leverage our consistency um, with the players and really collectively as a group of 
performance individuals between our athletic trainers, our strength coaches, our physios, how do we collectively work together as opposed to maybe, um, you know, just thinking about what we do specifically in isolation. So that was really a main theme of what we were trying to move forward with was just having a more collaborative, holistic approach. Um, and some of that came from identifying data that, that could be viewed as much as just everyone's as opposed to falling into this physical development bucket or the medical bucket. Um, and then figuring out kind of where that, you know, Switzerland location where everyone kind of collaborated on existed. Um, that was really where some of the early discussions were about um, to figure out, you know, because obviously at the end of end of professional expertise, you have that, that need to have um, that unreliable subjective feel of what's right. And then that's what happens on a day-to-day basis. But, but anchoring some of that in some more objective measures allows for us to more consistently understand, explain findings to each other and learn from each other. And then also ourselves figure out maybe where we're wrong as much as where we're right. So that we can actually think about how to get the player better if we need to do a different track. And, and that's really what, where some of the early discussions came from. And we did things that we utilized in the past um, that we, you know, thought would, would be reasonable ideas to implement. Um, and that's kind of where those discussions came from of if we have this gap, what do we think about this to fill it? Is it do we understand the reliability to it? Do we understand the validity to us that it is? Is it scalable? Does it drive treatment? And is it repeatable efficiently for testing? And those are some basic premises that we went into to look at our different protocols with to figure out what can fit into the bucket of something that's going to carry from the Dominican Republic to the um, to the uh, the big league group. So that's it. Sounds very simple as I talk about, and I, I but that's really how we kind of anchored our, our initial decision making. Mm-hmm. So one thing we chatted about beforehand was the kind of buildup of or the, the banking of data to understand what the demands of the game are. Is that and it, to to actually quantify that? within baseball and, and please forgive my ignorance with anything to do with baseball is that a, is that a pretty new thing that to, to, for people to want to understand that i know it's obviously buying the films um that i've seen it to me it, it feels like that's probably been going on for a, a long time um has it um i, th- I think it depends on, on what you mean by calculating workload or, or what has been done obviously a lot of this is led by the excellent group up at ASMI and Dr. James Andrews and his push on youth uh, or baseball injuries in general, let alone youth baseball injuries now that are that are far more common than what we would see in the professional ranks. Um, but really, you know, and, and they've done a great, we've done a great group or great, there's been great headway made by looking into, you know, pitch counts and number of pitches thrown and, number and estimates of what that is in the workload and and but then you also think about historically what's been done and people used to throw you know 100 plus pitches regularly if you look at some of the data from um from uh, jeff Boston's book about the arm and talking about how um how uh what happens in japan it's 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 very it's not as clear-cut as just a pitch count um and so really looking into how do we get a better estimate of what a true workload is on a given 
day and at 10 different locations. So I don't, and we have 250 plus players in the organization. I don't ever envision us having 250 catapult units um, to identify daily workloads. And so understanding what happens um, related to that, I think it will give us a better estimate of, of kind of where we can go with, with understanding what a workload is for a, a game. Um, you know, if there's, there's been some interesting estimates of, you know, a three hour game about if you're not the starting pitcher or the catcher, it's about five to 10 minutes of work, um, on average, depending upon the position. Um, and so how that gets spaced out and how that gets trained is, I, I would say is, is still a fairly, um, new area of, of understanding and, and exploration. Mm -hmm. So when, when you say about, you, you don't expect 250 catapult units. So what, what is the alternative to that? Would you have some some device on each player all the time, or is that just not scalable? Is the technology not out there to do what you want it to do? Um, it, it may be. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't know that it is. Um, I, I'm not concerned necessarily that it is. I, I think. Okay. The, um, I always think that with technology, it's there's there's a. I'd prefer to have a really good, well done control trial over over 17 ones that we're questioning the results and the findings of, um, which can be easily done. And so I think that some of this is understanding where our needs are and where our need for technology upgrades um, are, and then kind of moving forward from that standpoint. Um, I think some of it is understanding, you know, what is inside the guts of some of these devices and trying to leverage that as much as it is, is what are their proprietary algorithms and how much, you know, quote unquote buy-in or, or validate those um, for the company. And um, and so I, I really, I think that in some point in time, it's a matter of, I mean, we, you know, the big league team plays 162 games over 180 days. Um, Marlins is for the full season clubs is 144 games over 155 days. Um, and so, you know, I always, I kind of joke, I think, so a couple of years ago, Martin was presented at the, uh, no, it wasn't Martin. It was uh, one of his students um, was presenting at the, the FIFA meeting. And we talk about match day plus one, minus one, plus two, you know, minus two. And, you know, for us, match day is tomorrow, every single day, with the exception of <laughs> one day or one or two days, you know, every or one day, probably every other week. And um, it's not good or bad. It's just different. And so a lot of it is understanding recovery, recovery cycles, how players are responding to the loads and adapting from there. Um, but still getting the feedback from the players is still, a, I mean, even, even in American football is still a relatively novel thing. I mean, some of the strongest predictors of injury are consistently subjective, uh, feelings of workload and RPEs and having the players understand that is it's, it's not just, uh, I mean, you know, they, they want to play, right. It's a, it's a different culture. It's a different environment. Um, you know, these, you know, players in the, in the, um, and players in youth academies grow up with that as opposed to say, all right, this is new. Um, how's it going to be used kind of uh, in the way that could potentially hurt me? And that's a fair question. Those are fair comments. And so like most things, all of it's developing on that relationship with that player to figure out how can we help them and maximize what they can get out of their career during their time with, with our organization. Mm -hmm. So did you say 162 games in 180 days? Yeah, and that's just for the regular season. So spring training will be um, – I had it out somewhere, excuse me. Um, but somewhere on the odds of like 
27 games in 30 days. It's on the front end of that. And then obviously if you make the playoffs, it's actually a little more spread out than that, but, but it'll go the full month of, you know, it'll go the full month of, uh, of October beyond that. So, um, but yeah, the, the regular season is 162 games in 180 days. So forget the players. How do the staff cope with that? As, as you, as a, yeah. as a kind of performance director, how do you, how do you manage that from the, from a staff point of view? Cause I mean, you, you guys can be on the road, and do like seven games straight on the road. Is that right? That's that's not atypical, correct? Yeah. So how, how do you manage that with staff? Um, so each of our teams has one athletic trainer and certified athletic trainer and one strength conditioning coach. Um, and they're they're another part of the coaching staff. And um, and so I think that you know a lot of that is is letting the player letting the staff know like when they they when they need to take their time right everyone you know i think we're particularly with some of the younger staff members and um and certainly with most individuals you want to do a good job and you think by by being around more you can be doing a better job and i think it's the importance of letting them know they need their time to refresh to reset to recover to, to do their best across the across the uh, the time of the season. So, um, but no, I, I, a colleague of mine put it best. The, the um, couple of years ago, we were talking at ACSM, and he said, "Just imagine, you know, to the general audience, imagine you showing up to work 162 days out of 180, or 162 days out of 180, which is about 6.2 days a week. Um, like, I think the majority of uh, of society would be uh, would be probably a little bit uh, bit fatigue." From that, and which is where that's where a lot of our focus is, is is how do we efficiently engage our players in recovery strategies and maximize what they what they do complete and, and how they do perform over the course of that the long season. So it's going to take a very quick break in the chat with Rob. I hope you're enjoying part one. So in part two, we discuss a little bit more around recruitment, a little bit more around travel and fatigue management, and of course, the books that have most influenced Rob, his view on life, his view on his career, uh, if he was a practitioner, um, some really interesting books and some common themes that are starting to appear with what podcast guests are reading. But just before we get into the second half of the podcast, just want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box are an equipment manufacturer based in uh, Belfast, Northern Ireland. So they manufacture all types of strength training equipment uh, and offer full gym fit outs as they have done at professional football clubs um, in the Premier League and also gyms around the world. So if you are interested in getting to know more about Black Box Fitness, you can follow them on Twitter at BLKBoxFitness and visit their website BLKBoxFitness.com. So over to part two with Rob. Hope you enjoy. I'll speak to you soon. So just moving on to um, the recruitment side of things, is that is that something that you and your team are involved in? I know you mentioned going to Dominican and, and that been a, a hub for, for you guys. Is that, is, it, is that kind of stuff involved in your remit? Um, we, we've, so there are uh, seven departments and we try to collaborate as much as we can be helpful. Um, 
we have a great analytics group that, that's 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 high level and then well known and and we try to to um, to help get better data for for their standpoint to analyze. We 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 try to help out the drafting process, whether it's the domestic amateur draft or whether it's um, international, which has some different rules to it. Um, we try to support and, and help understand where individuals are at related to um, where they're at from a physical standpoint, leveraging that back to to thinking about kind of maturation and, and where they're at with their kind of growth cycle. Um, but yeah, we, we, we certainly, you know, we try to, we, we, we talk about not being in silos within our department, but we also try not to be in silos within the organization and help out when available. Um, you know, certainly we're not the individuals uh, scouting the baseball talent for how much it is, but when big questions come up about, you know, sometimes we're thinking about a pool of players, what are your thoughts with, with them related to physical abilities? And we try to put together processes to help them uh, understand, you know, where, where these different players line up related to where they're at. And then, you know, I think um, over time we have a better sense of really how they line up compared to, you um, you know, where they should be or where they shouldn't be, which obviously you need quite a bit of longitudinal data to look into, but no, mm-hmm. we'll try to, you know, do as much as we can with the, with the sample sizes that are available. Awesome. So just back to the, the travel, cause I, I just can't let it go. I'm just looking at my notes and I'm, I'm keep seeing 162 over 180. And um, so what kind of kind of fatigue management strategies do you put in place? I mean, especially for the, the guys that are getting, um, I suppose the most action, which obviously can be the, the pitches, I'm guessing. How, how are you How are you managing these guys who are, I mean, I'm just, in my head, I've got fast bowlers in cricket over here who are going to be the, the kind of, the, the game winners um, and put wrapping them in cotton wool. How, what do you guys, what strategies do you guys employ so there in their kind of best shape to, to do what they need to do on, on game night? Yeah, I think in I think in, in general, it's just having a, a consistent process in with those players and with all players to let them know how do we make decisions related to you know what we can suggest related to optimizing their recovery. Um, you know, the, the starting pitchers, the pitchers in general, like a routine, and so we put those pitchers on a routine of, of how we help facilitate their recovery and, and integrate with them. You know, obviously, individualized supplementation is an important part of that. Hydration is a part of it. Um, I don't think anything of it right now is smoke and mirrors. Uh, it's just pretty, just well, well thought out and well structured plans that are that are individualized and responded to with with how kind of the, the players uh, let us know how they're feeling based upon uh, a given day's performance. And you know, I do think the other piece that um, uh, comes in a lot is obviously the, the temperatures that can play a role significantly in the middle of the summer. Um, high humidity. High temps, uh, dehydration is a very important thing for a number of different reasons. Um, and certainly staying on top of that piece where, um, you know, players are usually going to get done the game and then eat and drink after, um, just to get hydrated. It's like, all right, well, how do you stay on top of that during the game when players may not want to feel, um, you know, a certain way with their body and, and kind of feel bogged down or, or bloated? Um, how do you try to manage that and, and manage that one on one interaction with the players to, to really make them feel like they're at their, they're at their best level to perform. Mm-hmm. So, how, how many how many pitches will these um, these pitches make per per night per game? So, there's kind of this this cutoff of uh, for the starting pitcher to, to make about 100 pitches. It's not an uncommon kind of cut point uh, where pitches are at, and then usually your relief pitchers that'll take you five innings or so, and then usually your relief pitchers are going to be 
Um, you hope you hope it's it's as few as possible. Certainly, uh, those are going to be somewhere around probably fifteen to twenty five pitches, uh, and depending upon how long the starter goes, go through three or four of those on a given evening, um, and then you know they'll be on more of a, of a cycle of you know the relief pitchers that pitchers that pitch one to two times per um, per hour. One or two innings per game, um, they'll be they'll be on a different cycle. Our starting pitchers are typically on a five day rotation, um, so that they pitch every uh, every sixth day, I guess, yeah, and four days in between. Um, and then uh, and then the relief pitchers are a little more flexible on that because their their workloads will change on a given night, and it's really knowing how much it's it's no different than the acute to chronic kind of work workload management piece that that a lot of people are talking about is, is how different are they? And then how do you balance out the maybe some times where, where they have uh, not been as active or, or they've been overly active and thinking about how you can support that individual and in, in maximizing what they're able to do or how they're feeling on a given night. So, um, so yeah, so over the course of the game, uh, you're likely going to get somewhere 145, 150 pitches in general. And I, I think that we often talk about the pitchers, but obviously the catcher is the person that's catching all those balls. Um, and so we often, you know, exploring some of that. Those guys get a pretty heavy workload with a lot of gear on. Um, and certainly a, an important area for exploring as far as being kind of some of those, uh, um, those guys that go through their really heavy workloads um, consistently uh, throughout the season. Mm-hmm. So them starting pitchers, you said, will pitch every fifth day? Correct. Is that what you said? Uh, five-man rotation, typically. Uh, okay. Okay. So what, what kind of, um, so when you, when you mentioned the group chronic, that's based on, um, subjective, subjective stuff. Yeah, I think. RPAs and whatnot. Yeah. I, uh, I think long-term it could potentially could be. Um, I think, I think right now a lot of it is, is thinking about, um, you know, what, what does the box score tell you, uh, related to information on, really nothing, you know, we're, we're looking to make it more scientific, but even simple things like what their pitch count was and, um, and, uh, and what it's been historically, um, and leveraging some of the information from, um, that's available in literature, thinking about factors that have led to, uh, led to injuries or overuse injuries, uh, be it a, um, be it percentage of, you know, so I think some of the, some of the um, some of the information we think about uh, spikes in workload. Obviously, as pitchers, they can have spikes in certain types of pitches they're throwing related to that workload. And there's been some suggestions oh, okay. by research that would suggest that maybe that's equally as important um, as some other factors as well. And so, understanding that um, and looking at kind of it from a multifactorial standpoint, um, and then really thinking about how they're recovering. Is obviously a you know that gives us a pretty good sense of of how to optimize the individual plan for each each player. Um, and really, you know, we've we talk about this is this is for all players. We've, we've kind of outlined the starting pitchers as being the um, uh, the main factors and pieces that we, we work on, and um, and it is because they do have that consistent plan and that consistent process. Um, but you know, equally so with the processes in place. Um, we may have some things that we kind of aren't as focused on for certain individuals, but, you know, if, if we see individuals who are having chronic soreness or, or other areas of concern, that the, the process remains consistent and structured, 
um, so that we can we can all learn from what is working for a player, and then also what are some other areas that we need to explore to really optimize the performance of, of the individual. Mm-hmm. So uh, at the Cardinals, with with trying to get as objective as possible, is there is there any cultural issues that may make that a little bit harder than you maybe first thought in in baseball as a sport? Well, I think that a lot of it goes back to just the comfort level in general of of people having this information and what do they do with it. Um, yeah, okay. And, and I think that it's it's more of a um, – I, I was lucky enough to go over and observe uh, Johan Billsburg when he was with Western Bulldogs and, and, um, and so much of that culture when you hear about it um, – at the European meetings, this type of feedback is not atypical as they come up through a system. Um, and so it's just like, you know, I mean, looking at a P chart, like you go into a youth P chart, youth stall P chart at a, at a sporting academy overseas, and there it is, like, know your P color. Like, like, <laughs> like, that's not an uncommon thing to be aware of that and stay on top of that. I'm not sure we're as we're as integrated in that in, you know, uh, across the United States as, as we would hopefully eventually be as far as really thinking about ways for individuals to stay on top of that. And, and I think some of that is the benefit of the um, European, Australian, um, what I would call the academy structure, which I think we're still trying to figure out a little bit in the States because there are very few teams that actually have a, I mean, I think probably Major League Soccer doesn't, as bad as well as anyone else where they really invest or have some process to identify and invest at the youth level and get individuals familiar with those processes as they come through the ranks. But certainly that's not, you know, the, the development process for American football is university football. And that's for half of baseball. That's about what it is. We draft about half from the, the college, college and university ranks. And so, um, and then there's, there's a little, obviously a lot of different, feeder systems into that. And certainly from the high school standpoint, uh, where we get another set of individuals, like it's just not, you know, so let's, let's go play the game. Let's, let's get integrated from that standpoint. Um, and so I think a lot of it's just comfort level, just like anything else. Right. I, I don't know that it's any, I think the, the first time I, uh, I filled out my, you know, rate your experience thing from Delta. I was worried that I was going to get a bad seat the next time that I ranked it poorly. Um, <laughs> so you, you got to get, you know, no, I don't want the middle seat on a cross-country trip, right? So um, I, I think you, you, it's just a matter of using that information and showing the player benefit to it and how can this help them and, and really thinking about holistically, well, you know, would this be helpful if, you know, the, the, the we call it the sporting coaches knew this player's workload or how they were feeling about their current workload. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, I think Patrick Ward's often talked about some of the the differences that that he'll see between what the players report for workload on a given exercise or activity compared to what the coaches feel, right? And I think that that's another good common discussion point of of perception versus reality, or at least you know function as it relates to to the players and our perception of what we're doing with the players. Um, but I do think that a lot of it just gets back down to. I mean, certainly in the Dominican Republic, there's not a big push on subjective RPE measures. Like your young kid, your 14, 15, 16 year old kids that, that want to sign by the time they're 16 and be involved in sport. And the goal is to play baseball at a high level. And so 
the performance model is, is really to play more baseball. Um, and so, you know, the idea that, that we would focus on these other aspects, it's just novel. And, and I suggest that as if it's somehow different with the, with the players from the DR, but it's really not any different from the player from the DR that we got a high school kid from California. Like it's just a matter of developing that relationship and using the information to talk with the players about how we can collaboratively support them in their efforts to become the, the highest performing professional that they are. So, um, yeah, certainly there, 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 there's certain cultural limitations, but like most things, um, getting the relationship right can, can usually change that culture. Um, you know, if, if, if utilized in the proper manner. Mm-hmm. Superb. Well, I'm just going to, um, I'm going to round up there, but one thing, and I, I forget every single time and I, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm not stitching you up here, but I, I've been asking a, um, the guests over the last couple of weeks, um, books that have influenced them in their, in their career, in their life, the coaching or as a practitioner or as a leader or whatever it may be. Do you have, uh, one or two that come to mind that have influenced you? Yeah, I probably have a, you know, I think the, the, the one that probably influences the most of us is the legacy book from the, the all blacks, right? So, um, that's, that's a massive one, but, um, Certainly for my professional development, uh, the, the two books that I often anchor into and we talk with, with, um, with staff about are, are the Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande and then, um, Switch by Chip and Dan Heath. Um, those two books are usually kind of anchor points that we talk about. Um, how do we, how do we really get better? Um, and somewhere in there is probably Simon Sinek's Start with Why as well. Um, but a lot of this has been kind of, bigger box discussion about why these processes matter and then how to really talk with people about how we collaboratively get better and learn better from our failure as much as from our success. So um, those would be my recommendations. Good list. Good list. So where, where can people um, get more information about, about you, Rob? Are you a, a social media guy? Are you on Twitter? I, I, I used to. I, 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 do, I feel like I have a reasonable retweet. Um, I think it's uh, RJ Butler underscore DPT PhD. Uh, there'll be a bulldog with a bow tie with Butler underneath it. That's, that's where I usually um, will, uh, will share from. Uh, I am on Facebook. I don't interact much there other than uh, family and friends. Um, and, uh, but love to interact and love to learn from those around us. I think there's a, um, we, we've taken one dip in the ocean here or maybe one toe in the ocean. I, I, I've learned so much more from the individuals around me who are comfortable sharing and, and exploring and learning and, and, and certainly trying to try to lean on that as much as possible. Um, as well, simultaneously try to point out maybe some of the, some of the, uh, I guess the high tech solutions that uh, may be less than uh, less than uh, as optimal as they report with their advertising. So uh, usually Twitter is the way that I'll interact with uh, um, with uh, with individuals that kind of around. So great, happy days. I'll put the uh, I'll put a link on the website and people can pass to you on Twitter. But um, thank you very much, Rob. Really appreciate your time, and I'll uh, I'll let you go because I know you're uh, you're in business middle of the day there. So thank you very much for your time, and I'll. Uh, I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Rob. Much appreciated. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 173 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Rob. 
So big thanks to Rob for giving up his time to chat with me on the podcast. I know he's got a hugely busy schedule, so uh, really appreciate him squeezing me in for a chat. So also big thanks to Vald Performance, Forstex, and Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. Got some really interesting guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. So if you are enjoying the content that is coming from the podcast, make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And if you are very, very kind and you're listening via iTunes, scroll to the bottom of the app and leave a rating and potentially a honest review, which would really help me in getting the word out of the podcast to more and more people. So thanks for tuning in and I will speak to you soon.